You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, a UK-based podcast written by a passenger to anyone. And here are your hosts, Carl Stebbing and Matt Smith. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 81 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings and joining me via Skype, because he's on holiday this week, it's my (laughs) co-host, Matt Smith. Hello, 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 and how are things over there in Majorca? Uh, Maj- Majorca, you absolute <laughs> heathen, darling! It is Menorca. I'll have you know. Sorry, Menorca, Menorca, Majorca. Wrong island for a start. Yes. Now I'm on the delightful <laughs> island of Menorca. I'm actually sitting outside um, my hotel, the Club Adriana, uh, which is uh, in a little village called Citadella. Uh, I'm actually sitting in the car park of the spa shop because that's the best place I can get Wi-Fi in order to be able to talk to you here. So, uh, yeah, but it's a glorious day. Uh, It's been overcast this morning, um, but we've had a couple of cracking days, both of which have been sort of beach days. Mm. Um, But no, oh, it's it's lovely, mate. It really is lovely. Oh, glad to hear it. And uh, how's Mother? How's she enjoying her holiday? She's fine. Yeah, no, she's absolutely fine. We're, We're sort of... It's the first time we've ever had a hire car, actually, uh, mm. whilst we've been uh, abroad. And it was quite entertaining to, um, well, uh, it was entertaining to sort of get out of the out of the airport, get in the car, and then immediately not only sit in the passenger seat, which feels all wrong yeah. uh, to drive the car, but then drive on the wrong side of the road. But yeah. uh, And in the dark, which is always a, a terrible way to start. But So, so yeah, what's, was... what's the vehicle of choice then? Well, the vehicle of choice has, has been a lovely surprise for us, actually, because it's a Vauxhall Mariva, <laughs> which is the car okay. that we had before. So uh, uh, in, in that respect, it's very different to the one that we had, because this is rather like a spaceship, this oh, one, okay. where it's got sort of automatic parking things and you have to put your foot on the clutch before it automatically starts and oh, wow. stuff like that. So it's all it's all very, very high tech. But uh, no, it's, re- it's a really lovely car, uh, which is why I'm sitting in it now talking to you. So, <laughs> so the most important question then that, uh, yes. that we all have for you this week, Matt, is yes. how was your flight experience, including airport? Right. Well, this is going to come as a bit of a shock because we flew from Luton, as I'm sure many of you know, and we are a little bit guilty of berating um, Luton (laughs) Airport. And I have to confess that Luton Airport was absolutely wonderful. No. No, I'll just let I'll just just a moment of silence we'll just, for that we'll just, um... for everyone. <laughs> Absolutely, there goes the tumbleweed. Uh, no, it, it really was. We had something called um, special assistance for mother this yeah. time round. Hmm. Um, not because re- as mum's mobility is is you know okay, but uh, it is the as I've as I've mentioned before. The walk from the airport um, departure lounge mm. uh, to the gate, especially with the unfortunately with the lower cost airlines, is one heck of a walk. And even for me, who does a lot of walking, it takes me fifteen to twenty minutes to get to the gate. But for poor mum, where you know where she's you know a couple of hundred yards and she needs to sort of rest her hip a bit. I mean, it, we were worried we weren't even going to make it to the uh, to the gate really before before, before the flight left. Um, but this special assistance, and what you have to do is you. You have to contact the airline so you don't contact the hospital uh, you don't contact the airport directly right. what, what was contact, the airline you, you what so what was it, the, uh, it was easyjet, EasyJet it was okay. actually easyjet in our case yeah mm-hmm. 
um, and you contact EasyJet in this case directly. And what they do um, is you you just check in with the special assistance bit, um, and that was it. Now I. I they did offer us a guy to sort of do it all. And I said, well, no, I'm capable of pushing, pushing the chair. And they basically just lent us, a, lent us a chair. But what it did mean is our seats had been pre-booked in advance, so we didn't have to pay extra in order to find out what our seats were uh, on front. And then we also went... Um, we had our own little lounge to sit in. It was almost like a sort mm. of these uh, club lounge you get. But it, was, uh, it wasn't anything special, but it had some tables and chairs and there was a coffee place just outside and it had got aircon in it and all mm. that. It was just, just, it was just it completely revolutionised our experience of Luton Airport. And then you, you, you go out, to, you sort of push them down, down this ramp, then you get in the lift to go down to the floor. Then you get in a little uh, shuttle bus that is designed for people with chair, wheelchairs and that kind of thing they whiz you round to the aircraft the aircraft crew or the, the you know the air stewardesses and that all meet you uh, at the bottom of the stairs ask if there's anything else because mum can make the stairs and that so we just made our way up sat down they took her stick off for and that was it and we wow. and just as just as we all sat down so the uh, the cattle arrived as it were <laughs> as they loaded the rest so it was just, honestly as much as it pains me to say it and i am the first to be bashing luton airport it was nothing short of an absolute just a wonderful experience and um as i say it completely revolutionized the start to our holiday you know it was just brilliant absolutely brilliant and easy jet the flight was it was the a319 yeah the Uh, airbus yeah 319 yeah yeah it was uh, the a319 it was one of the new ones Mm. uh loads of leg room Mm. uh despite this this i mean they sort of mentioned about you know reconfiguring it so that it you know, to get in more seats and stuff. But I have to say this A319, and I'm, you know, you, we all know I'm a big bloke. I managed to get my knees underneath the seats and everything. It was, it mm. was wonderful. Did you have a window so, seat? No, no, oh. no, no. I, 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 <laughs> I know this will come as a bit of a shock to many listeners, but I, I'm not really that good a flyer. Uh, oh. um, in fact, I would go so far as to say that the part of the whole thing I hate about the holiday is the flight. I'm afraid to say, cause uh, I'm not a good flyer, but, uh, uh, it was it was a very smooth flight, a little bit of turbulence because uh, it's about two hours ten minutes from Luton to to Menorca, so it's not a very long flight. I'm pleased to say. Um, oh, but it was wonderful. It really it really was uh, lovely and a perfect landing, absolutely perfect landing. Um, hardly you hardly felt him touch down. It was so good. It really was. Do you know what? Um, you you flew you flew with EasyJet um, this week. I flew with yep. EasyJet um, to Malta um, the week before, you know, last week. Yeah. And and I've got to say, because uh, Captain Jeff talks about this sort of thing all the time on his show, and yeah. one of the things which was really good about the flight crew on the um, A319 we travelled out on was that you, they actually gave us loads of information when we were uh, in flight. You know, oh, telling yeah, us, yeah, yeah, telling yeah, us where we were, we're flying over here, if you look out yeah. here you'll see this. And I'll tell you what, that is worth its weight in gold. I don't care... Well- if you don't want to hear that sort of information, I do, and I love it. Mm, absolutely, but you you do want to hear that thing, and of course, it does remind me very much of what I call old school flying, because mm. you used to get that information sort of ten years ago. That that sort of information that was given to you as a passenger, where the captain would come on come over the PA, if you like, and would almost just sort of chat innately to you for a few minutes about what they're doing and where they're going, the you know wind speeds, uh, routes, and all that kind of thing. And it very much reminds me of of what it used to be like ten years ago. Um, mm. And it's great to hear, isn't it? It's it almost fills you with confidence somehow, doesn't it? Mm. It was it was fantastic, and and I have to say as well because we flew back with Air Malta. 
on one of their Airbus A319s. And uh, we flew back with them on Sunday. And I I haven't flown with Air Malta for quite a few years now. It's been a few years since I've flown with Air Malta. And it was the first time on a 319 for me. And um, the service, I'll tell you what, Matt, it was exemplary service on there. Really? The aircraft Uh, we flew on. Did you have one of... Did you have one of the head massages that we covered a oh, few weeks? No, few months no. Back? Unfortunately, I didn't. No. Oh, I mean, outrageous. <laughs> we, it, I mean, for, for the price we paid for the seventy nine pounds each we paid to get home oh, with our Malta steady. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so we got we had the aircraft we were on was eleven years old. The A three nineteen. So it's quite an old aircraft, but it was right. spotless inside. It had really, right. really nice, comfortable leather seats. And um, we we got for that price, Matt. We got a choice of a ham and cheese or a uh, chicken and lettuce uh, baguette uh, with really? a yes, with a bottle of chilled uh, water. No way! What? Uh, not not extras that you no, have to pay for. Actually. No, oh, they no. were complimentary, yeah. and that's part well, of the sure. service with Air Malta, which was um, fantastic. And also from the, I don't know whether you had this uh, with your, I don't think you would have had this with uh, your flight, um, but they had the drop-down um, TV screens from the overhead um, parts of the plane. And you had sort, oh, of, yeah. uh, sort of, not brilliantly high definition, but normal standard TFT monitors that yeah, dropped yeah, down, yeah. And, uh, which gave us our, um, our map with us showing us where we were uh, in relation to the, the world. And it, it had the, uh, the altitude, the speed we were flying, the temperature outside, uh, time to destination, and how many miles we'd travelled, and it was all on the screen. It was it was fantastic. Really? Mm, yeah. Well, that, yeah. Well, and again, that sort of reminds you of sort of times we, before we all had individual screens at our mm. seats, if mm. you like. Um, that inf- that used to be quite commonplace, didn't it? It'd have a little map of where you were and where you were going and all that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. No, it's 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 uh, it's good. I think it's safe that we both had a couple of very pleasant experiences these last few weeks yes yes aviation related <laughs> positive experiences Absolutely. so we better we better kick it's 10 minutes here we better kick off the show look oh, so oh it, uh, the we're, date we're rambling on again aren't we honestly um <laughs> so we're, we're, we're recording slightly earlier this week it's friday the oh what's the day today it's friday the 9th of 9th, uh, yeah. october today yes. Um, no life this no. week, sadly. And we're going to publish uh, this on Sunday, as we normally do, on the 4th, yep. for you to listen to. So at the moment, it's uh, just gone past uh, 8 minutes past 3 in the afternoon here in the UK. I know yep. Matt is a hour ahead, so it's uh, nearly yep. 10 past it's 4, a, yep. your, uh, past your, four side yes. the, uh, your side of the water. Um, yep. So, yes, yeah, so it's episode 81, and uh, we've got uh, quite a bit of news for the, this week as well, and also... We hopefully should have a segment for you from Pip. Fingers crossed he should be sending us one of those through later. So if you're ready, Matt, uh, we're going to kick off uh, this week's show then, as we do with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Matt. I most certainly am. Let's go. So kicking off this first week's news story on the Breaking Travel News site. And the headline uh, is a sad headline uh, of a story which happened early this week. Very sad indeed. It's uh, a story that was covered on Sky News and a few of the big sites. 
And American Airlines uh, had a sad uh, event uh, earlier this week when one of their pilots uh, died on board a flight in the U.S. Um, the flight, American Airlines 550, landed safely uh, when the co-pilot took control of the aircraft and diverted to Cyrus's Air Airport in New York. Um, the pilot suffered a medical emergency during the flight, uh, the airline confirmed, and uh, the flight was on an overnight flight from Phoenix to Boston in the United States. Uh, American Airlines spokesperson Michelle Moore told the BBC uh, the airline was incredibly saddened by the news. The pilot had appeared ill during the flight, prompting the diversion, added Moore. A new crew was sent to Syracuse uh, to fly the passengers to Boston, where they arrived on Monday early afternoon. Um, I saw the reports this online. It's it's awfully sad indeed. You know um, that was uh, you know this this chap had a really good career behind him. You know he flew uh, for obviously you know American Airlines, one of the bigger airlines in the uh, in the US. And it's uh, it's just such sad news to hear of a pilot you know yeah. sadly passing away. You know, but um, on a plus side, I suppose he was doing a job he loves. Um, yeah, know, it's a sad and thing also still. you have to bear in mind something as 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 well frankly especially for the families involved horrific mm. um but absolutely no risk whatsoever to anyone uh, because you know the co-pilot was there so oh, I mean, yes. absolutely no risk to the to the people that were flying with him yes um but obviously terrible terrible news for the families involved in 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 this story but uh, yeah it's it's um it is sad isn't it yeah yeah but uh obviously as uh, matt just said you know uh uh, Captain Jeff says this a lot of times on his show because mm. a lot of people think that the co-pilot is just there to sit there in mm. the, uh, you know, in, in in the left or in the right seat, sorry, and uh, you know, mm. press a few buttons and, and have a chat. But uh, obviously, mm. you know, both pilots are fully trained uh, to fly the aircraft, Absolutely. and you know, in the event well, and, of something and, like and, this happening, and they, they can take over. Share, they quite often share it, don't they? If it's a oh, yeah. long haul flight, then they're they're sort of taking it in shifts, aren't they? It's, uh... mm. But they're very sad, and uh, obviously, yeah. Uh, mm. Our thoughts are with the uh, family and um, friends affected Absolutely. by that, but uh, but no, yeah. um, sad news. But um, you know, he's uh, he's yeah. uh, you know in a better place now. I think. Yeah, well, absolutely, as you say, and he was doing a job he loved, so exactly. uh, uh, hope, hopefully the family will take comfort in that, won't they? Anyway, yeah. on to the next story. On to the next story. Uh, this is, yeah, this is flightglobal.com, and the uh, it's a picture story here, which um, Carlos, no doubt, will put on the Facebook feed for us, and it says, Airbus delivers Finnair's first A350. Airbus has formally handed over its first A350 to the wide-body twin-jet type's first European operator, Finnair. The Helsinki-based One World carrier has ordered a total of 19 baseline A350-900s. Um, three more are to be delivered by the end of the year, uh, seven in 2016-17, stroke 17, and the other eight by 2023, Finnair says. Regular passenger flights are to begin on the 9th of October with the aircraft being used initially on European routes to Amsterdam and Oslo for crew familiarisation. On the 21st of November, Philair will deploy the type for its first long-haul service to Shanghai. The A350 will be the backbone of the carrier's network expansion strategy to Asian destinations, says Finnair. With the A350, we get the fleet uh, that our strategy requires, and we can start to build our growth, says Chief Executive Pekka Voramo. Uh, Finnair aims for its Asian traffic in 2020 to be double that of what it is in of what it was sorry in 2010 
The twin jets introduction is also set to double the airline's cargo um, capability um, by 2020, which the carrier says is central to its network expansion. Today, its long-haul fleet comp comprises of uh, eight A330-300s and seven A340-300s. Uh, Clyde Global's fleet analyzer database shows its short-haul fleet consists of 30 A320 family aircraft. Finnair has configured the A350 to accommodate 297 passengers, 46 in business class, 43 in premium economy and 208 in economy. The business class seats were manufactured by France and those in economy sections by Zodiac Seats US. Fleet Analyzer shows. Cabin features include Wi-Fi internet access, LED cabin lighting that can create a range of effects including one mimicking the northern lights. Oh, that's wow. quite nice. <laughs> and uh, a dedicated lavatory for females travelling in business class. What on earth? Why? Wow. Why? <laughs> <laughs> that's outrageous. The uh, interior has been designed by Finnish agency Design Verti Kivi & Co., uh, Finnair commercial chief Juar Javaisen uh, said the interior and cabin service plus the new revolutionary Panasonic IFE system will provide passengers with a unique Nordic experience. Wow. Wow. So, uh, well, it's quite quite an investment there, isn't it? If mm. they're uh, looking, at, looking to get... That's a lot of... That's 19 baselines. Um, so what they were... So 1922... Um, so we're looking to add nearly 30, or, or I presume they'll do it on a rolling replacement, mm. won't they? Well, I was just looking on their website, Matt, and yeah. um, on um, the Finnair site and out of their fleet. Uh, at the moment, they've got uh, four, five, six, seven Airbus A340s, which they're going to replace with these uh, A350s. So right. seven, seven of those are going to be going to, mm. um, to, to uh, probably sold to... Um, well, Lisa or back, or go back to a Lisa or, or sold to another airline. Yeah. Um, Finnair are looking to replace all of these aircraft, or the A340s, by 2000, uh, 2017 uh, with, wow. these, with these A350s. Um, but yeah, they've, uh, they've configured their A350s for 297, yeah, as you said, Matt, 297 passengers. That's uh, so. cosy, I think. <laughs> but they, uh, it does say on their site that, uh, as you say, this, they are the first European operator of the A350. Right. Which is quite a, uh, quite a sort of good thing to be to, to say, really, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah. looking at the picture there, it does look uh, pretty awesome. Um, mm -hmm. The logo's fairly plain, but it's very standout-ish. The Finnair logo mm. definitely stands out on the side of that aircraft. Actually, actually, uh, on Spanish television here, they've been running an ad for... For New Norwegian Airways, oh, yes. yeah. I think it was Norwegian.com, mm. and they've been making a very big thing about the fact that uh, Wi-Fi is now available on their aircraft. Um, and I mean, it's difficult to understand because I'll, I'll be the first to admit my Spanish is not exactly the most fluent. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going by the, the text that's appearing on screen and somebody sitting there uh, receiving emails in the air. So uh, yeah, it's uh, as I say, more and more of the carriers are going to start doing doing Wi-Fi as standard, I mm. think, can't they? So moving on to the next story, and this one on Flight Global, and the headline, Crew of Crashed Trigana ATR Received No GPWS Alerts. Now, um, for those of you who don't know, GPWS, Ground Proximity Warning, um, which is oh. part of um, 
it's a it's a, a built into most um, commercial passenger aircraft, GPWS, mm. and uh, a lot of other aircraft, well, um, GA aircraft. And uh, this is uh, one of those devices built into an aircraft that um, alerts the pilot when they're in very close proximity to the ground to warn them to uh, obviously pull up. And uh, the alert generally tends to be the whoop whoop pull up alert. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. So uh, this uh, a preliminary report into the fatal crash of Trigana Air Service ATR 42-300 on the 16th of August indicates that the crew received no ground proximity warning system alerts before crashing into a 8,300-foot ridge. National Transportation Safety Committee, the NTSC, initial report into the crash which killed 49 passengers and 5 crew is based on data from the aircraft's cockpit voice recorder, CVR which Indonesian authorities successfully downloaded. CVR data also indicates that the crew was not performing checklist procedures at the time the aircraft impacted the terrain. The crash occurred while the aircraft registered Papa Kilo Yankee Romeo November operated flight IL-267 from Senati to Oksibil in Indonesia's mountainous Papa province. At the time of the crash, the skies were mostly clear with broken clouds at 8,000 feet with moderate winds blowing at 110 degrees and 8 knots. The aircraft had departed at uh, 15.04 local time and contacted the Oksibil Aerodrome (laughs) uh, Flight Information Services at uh, 15.55, reporting that it was cruising at 11,500 feet over waypoint Ambasilbil. The controller acknowledged the message and the pilot said the aircraft would fly a direct base leg routing to runway 11, which sits at an elevation of 4,000 feet in a valley. Five minutes later, the AFIS officer had yet to hear from the aircraft, which should have been on finals to runway 11. He tried to contact the aircraft but received no replies. Calls to the other airfields nearby revealed that uh, Papakilo Yankee Romeo November had not diverted. Search and rescue services were activated, but only on 17th of August was the wreckage actually located. Apart from the CVR revelations, the report sheds little new light on the cause of the crash. Indonesian authorities were unable to download information from the flight data recorder, and this will be undertaken by the BEA in France. The NTSC, however, issued several recommendations. It stressed that Trigana flight crews need to comply with company procedures such as briefings, checklists, reading approach procedures and visual flight rules minima as well as monitoring. It also recommends that Trigana ensure the maintenance data record is up to date and includes the installed components. The report revealed that uh, the pilot in command was 60 years of age and had over 25,000 hours of flight experience, of which 7,340 hours were on the ATR aircraft. The 44-year-old first officer had 3,800 hours of flying and 2,640 hours on ATRs. The final report on the crash uh, is due to be issued on the 16th of August 2016. So it's uh, so, so was it dark? Uh, it was, a, according to this, it says it was a clear, uh, clear sky. Um, clear skies, broken clouds. Uh, it was a daytime, yeah, it was daytime at VFR, yeah. visual flight rules. Mm. So um, I, don't, I don't understand why there wasn't an alarm bell ringing with regard to you know the pilot and co-pilot then mm. if, if you were very very close to the the ground if your computer is telling you that you're still a long way from ground but you can see the ground the, and you've got that much experience surely there should mm. be an alarm bell ringing in your head mm. 
it's um it, something's gone horribly wrong here isn't it? i mean there, there are a lot of settings and stuff you have to program in with various computers and stuff to tell it you know exactly what levels yeah, but your you flight can still look out of the window oh yeah you? the old mark one eyeball is still uh something that yeah, uh, you absolutely. need to yeah, perhaps yeah. that's actually, that's that's one we need to talk to pip about yeah i, think, I, really, I, I was going to say that this is yeah. uh, if you're listening pip this is something that uh, perhaps you could cover on one of your segments on this trigana air uh, atr 42 yeah, very strange mm, very yeah. strange see if he can shed some light on this absolutely yeah so next on story to the next story this is on flight global uh, and uh, the headline is city jet poised to order super jets uh, irish regional carrier city jet now that's not what i've heard of city jet. i didn't realize they were irish no nor are they I. a Ryanair rival then uh city jet are based in dublin um, they've got uh, they've got hubs in Dublin, London City, and have also got cool. uh, a hub on behalf of uh, Air France in Paris, Charles de Gaulle. Wow! Uh, Do they? Yeah. Not, I can say they they need to start coming to Stansted. That would be marvellous. Anyway, <coughs> Irish <on>. regional carrier <laughs> uh, City Jet is to close is close to finalising an order with fifteen Sukhoi Superjets to replace BAE Systems Avro RJ eighty fives. Sources familiar with the matter have indicated the deal which also spans options for additional superjets will be confirmed at the European Regions Airline Association uh, that's the ERA General Assembly uh, being held in Berlin between the 13th and the 15th of October say sources earlier this month Intro Group owned CityJet disclosed a firm order for eight Bombardier CRJ 900s to be wet leased to SAS to 14 CRJ900s could be delivered to CityJet under its agreement with the Canadian Airframer. A Flight Global's Fleets Analyzer database shows that the CityJet fleet today comprises of 18 RJ85s and one Fokker 50. So it's obviously smaller than, than Ryanair, essentially, if they're, if they're using these particular mm, they're region, Regional sort of short hops, yeah. uh, short flights. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, oh, well, that, that's one to watch out for then, isn't it? So what's what's just as I say you'll have to excuse the uh, the novelty here the 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 well I keep getting told off for this because I always go <laughs> bombardier but uh, bombardier the CRJ one hundred so what what sort of size stop laughing uh, what sort of size I'm trying to be serious here come on play okay, nice. fine. Uh, what's what size what size are they in relation to I mean what what's the average um, sort of seat so the CRJ the CRJ nine hundred um, seats yeah. uh, in a in a one class kind of thing just sort yeah. of all all economy. Uh, 90 yeah. passengers 90 90 yeah right. 90 passengers okay. um uh i'm just going through it here we go uh it can carry a little bit of cargo not much um yeah. and has a range of 1048 nautical miles which is 1206 oh. miles that's enough to sort of do little little short hops mm. to Ireland and back, isn't it? If you or London, you know, London to well, that'd be enough to come to Menorca and back, wouldn't it? It's powered by General Electric engines, right? Um, and it's uh, it's. I'm just trying to see whether it's the class layout. I think it's um, or the actual seating range. I think it's uh, a two and two. I think on the CRJ 900s. Wow. Pretty sure it's a two with an aisle and uh, two seats on those. But um, no, City Jet, as you were, you're, you're talking about there, they've. Um, They've got uh, 18 of these RJ85s, mm. the regional jets, which are based on the BAE 146. They're a four-engine yep. um, short sort of um, uh, hop uh, jet, but um, quite powerful with so four they're engines. Not going, they're not going up in size as such. They're just replacing their... Fl- yeah, they're re- I mean, the RJ85, which they're replacing, is quite an old aircraft that they've got. Mm. Um, quite an old aircraft. 
and seven actually seven of uh, City Jets uh, RJ one eighty fives are actually operated for Air France um, on on behalf oh. you know with Air France so. Well, sort of like a, like a co-chair type thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, kind of sharing of aircraft. I yeah. suppose to sort of spread the spread the love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I know. Oh, dear. So next story, <laughs> and uh, it's on Flight Global, and um, one of the largest airli- airlines in the world, Emirates, and the headline: Emirates to choose between A three fifty nine hundred and seven eight seven dash ten next year. Wow, this is going to be some interesting news to see because uh, mm. this is an Airbus or Boeing battle here with Emirates. So Emirates will not choose between the Airbus A350-900 or the Boeing 787-10 until next year. Chief Executive Tim Clark has confirmed this, quashing speculation that the Dubai Air Show might bring a high-profile order to one of the mid-sized wide bodies from the local flag carrier. Clark has also ruled out a commitment at the show for more Airbus A380s, although he's still urging Toulouse to relaunch um, a revamped A380 Neo variant of the Super Jumbo. Emirates has all the data we need to make an assessment of the baseline A350 and the stretch Dreamliner, although a decision is not imminent, Clark told Flight Global. It will be in 2016, but when? I don't know, and will be one or the other, he adds. Emirates cancelled its original order for 70 A350-900 and 1000s last year, but Clark says he's happy with revised performance numbers from Airbus now that the Dash 900 has entered service. We're now getting meaningful figures, he says, and the originals were just estimates. Clark has also expressed concerns over the 787-10's hot weather performance in the Gulf summer. He says there are still issues with the Dash 10, but he maintains that Emirates has been testing it on paper and is satisfied it could fulfill a role. We couldn't put it on the New York or Sydney, but as a workhorse up to eight and a half hours without a kink in the payload, it looks like a good aeroplane, he says. Clark says he doesn't think that Airbus will launch an A380neo at the air show and suggests that Emirates would not be able to incorporate any more of the ultra-large aircraft at its uh, close-to-capacity Dubai International Airport base. However, he remains uh, keen on a new version of the Super Jumbo if Airbus do develop it. It would be of great interest to everybody, and he'd like to see more A380s, he said. He adds that the A380neo uh, would not have been a big, or would not be a bigger aircraft, but the new engines as in NEO, new engine option, and aerodynamic tweaks could make the existing A380 up to 13% more economical. Despite congestion at Dubai Airport, Clark says the new Dubai World Central, or Al Maktoum International, will not be ready for Emirates to relocate its passenger operations until the second half of the 2020s. The new airport in the Jebel Ali district of South Dubai is embarked or earmarked to become the world's biggest hub, but currently consists of one runway and a modest terminal building, and is used mainly for cargo uh, by the airport at the handful or by a handful of carriers. We're having to manage a very compressed airport here at Dubai, and it's focusing a lot of our attention these days, says Clark although efficiencies are being introduced in terms of break-to-vacate processes on the runways. Dual arrival procedures and air traffic control, he says, Emirates is having to operate very compressed banks of flights. Ultimately, there are only a certain number of parking spaces, and it's becoming more and more difficult, he says. Wow, now, so Emirates, obviously, are such a huge airline. Mm. And um, 
you know, they've got uh, obviously they've got, they've got the largest world fleet of Airbus A380s, the big twin decker um, Airbus, and they've also got I think they've got the largest fleet of triple sevens as well, the Boeing triple seven uh, aircraft. So well. I mean, so let, let's cut the chase here. Who do you think will win uh, between Airbus and, and Boeing? Then do you know it's a tough. I I honestly couldn't call this one, Matt. You know, perhaps, yeah. perhaps some of the listeners could uh, give us some feedback uh, on what uh, what might happen here, but. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see what who they choose because obviously having a mixed mm. fleet such as Emirates does with Boeing and Airbus, yeah, um, yeah, it's going to be I don't know if I, I mean if it was me I'll it, choose it is Boeing. It's very unusual <laughs> for for a carrier to actually have um, a mixed fleet like that because you tend to find that most carriers will opt for one or other, mm. won't they? You don't normally have what I mean. I guess because Etihad is so big. It, it, you know, it, it, I guess it depends on which hub they're operating on as to which spares are easiest to get to, I guess. but Yeah, Emirates, uh, Emirates is, is, is a huge airline. There's no doubt about that. Mm. Um, yeah. And obviously they're as well, not just being a big airline, but their service as well um, is, is awesome as well, as I've found out myself. Mm. Uh, well, so, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, my yeah, uncle's no, my good. uncle's actually currently in in Australia, and he flew out to Australia with Etihad. So I'm going to be interested right. to find out how he got on with Etihad, because obviously uh, Etihad yes. are another um, a, a kind of um, another big, uh, yeah, big, big airline, airline. Mm. over in the Emirates kind of the world. Um, but no, fleet size wise, Emirates have a fleet size of uh, just over 222 aircraft, mm. uh, which is pretty huge. Um, yeah, they've got uh, three Airbus A340s as well. Um, they've got uh, obviously got some cargo aircraft. Emirates have their cargo aircraft. Um, just looking through here, doesn't um, Yeah, I think it's, I th- we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait and see mm. what, what happens here. See what. Yeah, and the de- decision next year. Mm. Did, did you said? Didn't yes, you? decision next year. Mm-hmm. So watch this oh, space. Well. Absolutely, yes. Okay, anyway, on to the next story. This is on the BreakingTravelNews.com website, and the headline is Lan Airlines uh, signs code share deal with Jetstar. Lan Airlines, a member of Latam Airlines, that's L-A-T-A-M Airlines Group, the largest airline group in Latin America, and Jetstar Airways, an affiliate of Qantas, have signed a code share agreement to complement the current agreements that Lan Airlines maintains with Qantas, effectively strengthening the connectivity between South America and Oceana. Through the co-chair agreement, starting today, Lan Airlines passengers can access 15 new destinations offered by the Australian carrier within Australia and New Zealand. In the future, the airline expects to strengthen the alliance by incorporating international routes between countries in Oceania and Southeast Asia. The new agreement, which strengthens the existing relationship between LAN Airlines and Jetstar Airways, expands our network of tourist destinations in Oceania and allows our passengers to connect from Sydney and Auckland to attractive destinations in the region, explained Soldad Beros, and he is the Vice President of Strategic Alliances for Latham Airlines Group. The agreement will expand international connectivity between South America and Oceania and allow LAN or LAN Airlines passengers to fly from San Diego, uh, from Santiago, sorry, Chile, to 15 destinations in Australia and New Zealand. The agreement will optimise connectivity from Auckland to important cities in Australia. 
Australia, such as the Gold Coast and Melbourne. In New Zealand, passengers will be able to connect from Auckland to destinations such as Wellington, Dudin, uh, is it? Uh, I can never Dundin, Christchurch. <laughs> Christchurch and Queenstown. Meanwhile, in Australia, the agreement will connect Sydney to cities such as Byron Bay, Cairns, Darwin, Hobart, Hamilton Island, Sunshine Coast and more. Thanks to the alliance, uh, LAN Airlines passengers uh, will be able to purchase a single ticket to any of the destinations and earned KM Land Pass on all Jetstar flights covered by the co-chair agreement via any of LAN Airlines sales channels. For domestic flights within Australia and New Zealand and international flights between the two countries, Jetstar uses a fleet of Airbus A320s. For long-haul international flights from Australia, the carrier operates the Boeing 787-8, one of the industry's most modern jetliners. Hmm. Just to give you an idea, Matt, on the yep. difference in sizes between LAN Airlines and Jetstar. Mm. Um, obviously, LAN um, being the Latin American, um, you know, yeah. based uh, or Santiago. Mm. Uh, LAN have a fleet size of 150 mainline air- aircraft. Uh, that's mm. 150. Jetstar have 71. Uh, yeah. LAN have uh, destinations, mainline destinations of 66, and Jetstar mm. have 35. So it's kind of, what do you say, about half? Jetstar have got sort of half the um, half the aircraft and, and sort of half oh. the fleet, half the um, destinations that uh, LAN have. So mm. together, I suppose it's uh, it's going to be uh, quite good, uh, good for, for definitely good news for Jetstar, because they'll have, yeah, um, they'll have access to Latin America, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, and well, and it, as I say, it's anything that's uh, you know good news for customers, obviously. I mean, it's uh, you know they're they're well, they're all based in very lovely parts of the world. I mean, New Zealand is one place that I am desperate to return mm. to because uh, I, I went, uh, I've explored the North Island and did everything from Auckland to the Bay of Islands and and uh, sort of Ooh, many locations thing. in between. But um, yeah, the, I still yet to go back and explore the explore the. Uh, the South Island, of which, uh, of course, Christchurch is is one of the more famous ones. Although it is a little bit uh, prone to the occasional earthquake, but mm. uh, indeed. But Jetstar is obviously one of those airlines that uh, Stephen Grant will obviously uh, will know fairly ah, well because yes. it's over there, neck of the woods. Of course, yes, the legends that is. Yes. So moving <laughs> on to the next story, which is on the breaking yeah. travel news site, and uh, really great news for the UK. Well, uh, for BA anyway, and the headline. Uh, British Airways welcomes the first Boeing Dreamliner 787-9 to their fleet. Now, it's a story I've followed this week on the social media sites. It's an awesome-looking aircraft, the Dash 9 being slightly bigger than the Dash 8 Dreamliner. Mm. Um, so British Airways' first Boeing 787-9 has arrived at Heathrow this week to take its place in the airline's fleet. Following an 8-hour and 45-minute flight from Seattle, the aircraft registration Golf Zulu Bravo Kilo Alpha touched down at its new home at 0850 local time. It's the uh, first of 22-900s for the airline, and is, uh, which are, they're set to receive from Boeing, uh, with the next due to arrive in mid-October, and a further two expected by the end of the year. To mark the arrival of the new Dreamliner, BA has released a time-lapse video of the aircraft being built in Seattle. Mitch Preston, British Airways flight technical manager for the Boeing 787 fleet, 
and the pilot who flew the aircraft to uh, Heathrow said it's always been uh, always a privilege to be the first pilot to fly an aircraft on its delivery flight. I was lucky enough to bring our first 787-8 to Heathrow in 2013 as well. Oh, lucky man. Flying with just the uh, small delivery team on board is a very different experience to a normal flight with customers on board, he said. I'm really looking forward to the first one of those flights we have with customers because I think our customers are going to enjoy the latest addition to our fleet. The new aircraft will start flying to Delhi in India from October the 25th, 2015, followed by Abu Dhabi and Muscat from November the 5th, 2015. I need to go back to Oman. Uh, the 787-9 will also fly to Kuala Lumpur in December and in February the aircraft will start flights to Austin in Texas the 787-9 is 20 feet longer than the 787-8 which is its predecessor of which the airline has 8 so as well as offering World Traveller Economy World Traveller Plus Premium Economy and Club World Business Class there is also room for a new first class cabin the first for the airline 787 fleet. The first cabin has just eight seats in comparison to the 14 seats available on other British Airways long-haul aircraft, given even more exclusivity and privacy to customers. Crafted specifically for the Boeing 787-9, the new cabin has been painstakingly designed based on feedback from first customers to put comfort at the heart of the experience and make the very best use of the more intimate space. The aircraft will now go on an intensive entry into service program which will include ground trials and familiarization trips. The 787s are the most technologically advanced aircraft in British Airways' fleet. Different pressurization means the internal cabin altitude is the equivalent of 6,000 feet, which is 2,000 feet lower than on other aircraft. This leads to greater humidity, reducing the drying effect of the cabin air so customers arrive feeling more refreshed. The aircraft's smooth ride technology also provides extra comfort during any turbulence. And with a total of 42 787s destined to join BA, the aircraft is becoming the mainstay of the airline's fleet. Mm. Now on the picture there, we've got a lovely picture there of the Dreamliner landing at Heathrow. <coughs> and uh, looking lovely in the BA logo with the uh, flag Obviously, on the tail. Yeah. Looking lovely there. And, so uh, how many have they, have they got several of these on order, or is this just a trial, this 787-9? No, they have got some more on order. I shall tell you how many they've got on order, if you just give me <laughs> just a second there. Just looking on there. Uh, just uh, putting you on the spot. Oh, thank you. Oh, you always do it always every a, week. I know. I, I tell I, you, I, it, and it, even when I'm not <laughs> in the studio, I can still put you under pressure. It's brilliant. I love it. it do you know what? It, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's kind of you paying me back for all those times I stitch you up with a Ryanair story, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. Mm, yeah. or, or doing live um, broadcast. That's always <laughs> stitching me up as well. Nasty man. Mid, mid, yes. Mid, <laughs> mid podcast. Oh, is any chance a guest could join us? Yeah, why not? Yeah, well, <laughs> throw one in. So, this, my dear friend, is what we like to refer to as revenge. <laughs> I should get some sound effects ready, really. I, I'm very sorry. It is the uh, it is the uh, the, uh, the the gin and Fanta lemon that's talking. I think. <laughs> oh dear. So getting back getting back to business. Uh, B- oh yes, yes. BA. What, what British- are we doing again? Oh, oh yes, airline show. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> God, so British Airways. Wait till you get home. British Airways have um, have obviously they've got their first one and they've got twenty one more on order. Wow, that's a heck of an 
older, isn't it? That is, yeah. Um, they've got uh, eight uh, dash eights, the oldest uh, Dreamliner, the first original yeah. Dreamliner. Yeah. Um, but they, they're yet to um, yet to get uh, obviously um, any dash one th- uh, dash tens, which is the next one up from the dash nine. Um, but they have got twelve of them on uh, on the back order as well. But no, no, twenty yeah. twenty one anyway. Twenty one of the dash nines. Um, is what uh, BA have got ordered. So um, fantastic! Any any idea of uh, when when uh, delivery is expected on on the extra ones? Is it just sort of one every one every few weeks? Is there details there for that? No, and it, I mean it says. Um, I mean the order um, didn't uh, get completed until the thirty first of August this year. So when right. when those okay. aircraft will be coming off, you know, off the uh, production. Uh, field over at Seattle and flown over here, and um, we'll we'll actually, this, we'll, we'll this, keep up to this, date with that. Yeah, this is one for the listeners. Actually, I'm I'm curious to know from the moment that you place a firm order with, say, someone like Airbus or Boeing, how long is it from the moment you say yes, I want that aeroplane? Here's the money to from <laughs> that when that order is placed to when you actually receive it. Just out of curiosity, yeah, I'm sure that perhaps one of our there'll be a listener out there somewhere I know who will be able to send the answer to that question. It's just out of sheer curiosity. Well, hopefully there will be. Well, yes, absolutely. Mm. What, what you mean? You hope there'll be listeners, or well, or, I hope uh, there will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping we've got listeners. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so we've got uh, oh, the next story. Anyway. Uh, we've yes, got some I'll audio do. for the next story as well. So we'll we'll, uh, we'll let Matt do this story, and then we'll play the bit of audio afterwards. Okay. Oh, how very exciting! Mm. And I'm very much looking forward to this because she's one of my favourite friends, Ooh. actresses. That'll give you a good behave. Sorry. <laughs> you can tell the wife in home from work yet, can't you? Uh, Emirates welcomes Jennifer Aniston for global ad campaign. Emirates has unveiled its highly anticipated television commercial featuring Hollywood actress, director and producer Jennifer Aniston. This marks the first time Emirates has collaborated with the international star in a global digital and TV campaign. The Golden Globe and Emmy Award-winning actress showcases her impeccable comedic timing in the Global Airlines' light-hearted ad. The ad opens with Aniston looking frantically for the onboard shower and lounge, but uh, being mocked and ridiculed by the cabin crew. It turns out to be a nightmare as she wakes up to reality in her own private suite in the Emirates' first-class cabin before getting acquainted with the airline's iconic A380 shower, spa and onboard lounge. Hello. Oh. <laughs> Dude, we need to hurry up and win the Euro Millions. I know. That's all I'm, I'm trying. Uh, it turns out uh, to be... A nightmare as... Oh, no, I've just read that bit. I'm so sorry. Uh, Boutros Boutros, uh, Emirates Divisional Senior Vice President, Corporate Communications, Marketing and Brand, explained that uh, Jennifer Aniston's appeal and effortless connection with a global audience makes her the perfect choice for her, her, her ad campaign. As one of the busiest women in Hollywood, Aniston, like many of our customers enjoys downtime only when she's traveling at emirates we ensure the experience is an exceptional one with a departure from the usual airline industry ads we chose to take a humorous approach to the showcase uh, uh, to showcase the amazing products that we can offer on board we wouldn't think of, of anyone better suited for the role than jennifer aniston and we wrote the script with her in mind her professionalism and comedic talent shone on the set and we are very pleased with the outcome he added the global digital and television campaign will begin in the united states and the uae before being rolled out in november to other countries where emirates has a big operational presence including the uk germany france italy india and australia emirates has 
to date invested 20 million US dollars in securing TV spots worldwide wow. for this campaign, which will have a 30 second and longer 60 second version. Wow. And we yeah. have got that uh, advert for play for you. It's just the audio, but uh, it yep. is quite cool to listen to. So here we go. I know. Hi. I'm looking for the shower. There are no showers here, ma'am. Well, I'm going to look pretty silly dressed like this going to the bar. There's no bar here, but we do have hot towels and a bag of peanuts. Emirates planes have showers and they have bars. No, this isn't an Emirates plane, ma'am. No, no, no. There's no shower? Oh, and there's no bar. Why are you laughing like that? You're killing me. It was such a nightmare. I was on a plane and it was nothing like this. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you so much. Hey, is there um is there someone that we could talk to about maybe flying this around a little bit longer? Just like an hour. So there we go. We just that was the uh, that was the advert. Do you enjoy that? I just it's just, uh, I just, I just need a moment, really. I just glaze this over at Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> she is gorgeous. She is gorgeous. Uh, so yeah, so that uh, I mean, that's quite, a, that's quite a cool. I can't, I can't, I can't talk to you for a minute. I'm, I'm still enjoying the moment. Be quiet. Don't spoil it. <laughs> I was never a huge Friends fan. Uh, I will, say, I will admit, what? but, uh, but I, I, what? I, 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 no, sorry, sorry, but uh, obviously I do love Why the Jennifer you and Aniston. Get explain. Um, we don't like any of the same thing. What's going on? <laughs> I like Our your relationship coach. is over, Carlos. No. That's it. Done. No. <laughs> Dude, that's all I've got to watch in the hotel no. room here. Don't t- don't take that element of pleasure away from me. Help me. <laughs> oh, dear. oh dear. We must anyway, move. Anyway, we'll moving, on. Lose the- moving on the plot. Well, I think you better take the next story. Losing yes. the plot here, yeah. <laughs> So the next uh, story on uh, breaking news travel site, this one. And uh, the headline is Cosmos Holidays begins transition to Monarch brand. So uh, the Cosmos Holidays here in the UK is changing its name to Monarch. The tour operator, which currently trades as Cosmos Holidays, will start to transition the Monarch brand from today. Avro and uh, Somewhere to Stay, which sell flights and hotel accommodation respectively through the travel trade, will also operate under the Monarch brand. From summer 2016, the holiday program offered by Monarch will be fully aligned with the airline's scheduled route network and will focus exclusively on destinations served by the airline. The tour operator will move away from using third-party carriers by this time. An improved range of hotels at the airline's destinations will also be introduced to the program. Andrew Swaffield, chief executive of Monarch Group, said for almost 50 years the Monarch name has stood for quality, value and excellent service. Now is the right time for us to consolidate all of our travel products under one brand. Monarch will also be introducing a new website through which the travel trade partners can book full range of flights on holidays and hotels. Richard Francis, Managing Director of Monarch Tour Operations, said from now on we will be able to give our trade partners and their customers one integrated program of flights, holidays and hotels. 
We believe that uh, bringing the Monarch brand to, into the trade for the first time and putting all of our products under this one well-established brand provides clarity, consistency for all our trade partners and their customers. Now, one of the th- one of the uh, sort of the, the larger airlines in the UK, Monarch, uh, an airline that I've flown on many years ago, uh, but a really good airline. And also Cosmos. I mean, I've booked um, quite a few holidays years and years and years ago with Cosmos. So they also have been quite a large, sort of big name in the UK. So obviously it will all be known as Monarch from now on then, Matt. Wow. Wow. Uh, that, that's, that's quite huge, actually, isn't it? I mean, we're sort of fairly familiar with Monarch here, aren't we? Mm, yeah. Uh, they, they used to do quite a few flights out of Norwich, didn't they, at one time, Monarch? Uh, uh, I, I don't know, Matt. They could possibly. I think we're talk- I'm talking a few years ago on... Mm. Not not lately, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that that's that's good. But Cosmos, Cosmos was um, one of the uh, tra- uh, travel operators that uh, used to sort of favour the the uh, Tunisia and the kind of uh, Egypt and, and destinations like that many years ago. I mm. remember, remember very wow. well. So next story. And yeah, yeah. Next story. This is uh, on uh, breaking travel news again, and the headline is Etihad Airways to bring uh, to bring to A380. Uh, that, hang on, let's let's read that headline again. Etihad <laughs> Airways is to bring the A380 to Abu Dhabi, New York route. There we go. So Etihad Airways has announced. Its award-winning Airbus A380 service will begin flying between Abu Dhabi and New York's John F. K. International Airport on November the 23rd, 2015. The aircraft is the only one flying to feature a commercially available three-room suite in the sky. Uh, three-room suite in the sky. The residence by Etihad, which I think is where this, where the commercial. Um, uh, oh no, because that was that was Emirates, wasn't it? Ooh, it's a rival, isn't it? Mm, it is, yeah. Indeed, the updated arrival date and additional capacity for the A380 service comes in response to strong demand from Etihad Airways guests who are travelling during the US's busiest busy Thanksgiving holiday, as well as to attend the 2015 Formula One Abu Dhabi Grand Prix taking place in November uh, between between the 27th and 29th. Uh, The new service was originally scheduled to begin on December the 1st, 2015, and will replace one of the existing Boeing 777 services. Etihad Chief Executive James Hogan said, Etihad Airways is committed to reimagining the travel experience to offer the ultimate in luxury, comfort and service for our guests. The overwhelmingly positive response we have received to our A380 service on our Abu Dhabi to London and Sydney routes, as well as for our up-and-coming launch to New York, has exceeded our expectations. With the early introduction of our A380 service into New York, we look forward to further redefining what world-class air travel can be for our guests travelling on Etihad Airways across all classes of service. From the moment they begin... In their journey, guests in the residence by Etihad in Ultimate in a chauffeur-driven ride to the airport up mm. to two guests on board will experience a private three-room suite that includes a living room, a double bedroom and a separate ensuite shower room. Guests uh, also have access to Etihad uh, Lifestyle Concierge Team, which works closely with the airline's in-flight uh, Savoy-trained butlers to deliver highly personalized service both on the ground and in the air including dining reservations entertainment bookings special events destination information and 
lifestyle services. The nine first apartments in first class are completely private uh, living spaces featuring a reclining lounge chair and an ottoman, which opens up to become a separate 80.5 inch long fully flat bed. A total of 70 business studios are located on the upper deck of the A380, all offering direct aisle access, a fully flat bed of up to 80.5 inches long and an increase of 20% in personal space. The lobby, a luxurious lounge located between the first class and the business class cabins, features two comfortable leather sofas and a staffed bar serving a wide selection of hot snacks and refreshments. The main deck features uh, 415 economy smart seats, mm. which provide a, a enhanced comfort with a unique fixed wing headrest on each seat, adjustable lumbar support, and a seat width of almost 19 inches. God, they're like armchairs, aren't they? <laughs> Etihad uh, Airways has introduced the latest Panasonic EX3 entertainment system on its A380 fleet, providing more than 750 hours of on-demand entertainment, uh, improved gaming and high-definition screens across all cabins. The A380 has full mobile and Wi-Fi service with USB and PowerPoints at every seat. Etihad Airways will also offer daily service with the airline's new A380 between the two cities with uh, EY103 departing Abu Dhabi at 3.20 in the morning and arriving at 10 past 9 in New York. This is also in the morning. The return flight EY102 will depart New York at uh, uh, 2.30 in the afternoon and arrive the next day in Abu Dhabi at around about lunchtime, 12.15. Wow. Wow. So that's one of the uh, the uh, Etihad is what that uh, residence yeah. kind of thing is. We covered one of that in the stories earlier on this yes, year. Yes, we have. That, yeah, that's yeah, that yeah. awesome, like um, service, like your own rooms and stuff like that. It's really, really great. Who, um, who do we have? To, who do we have to go and talk to to be able to go and have a look at one? I don't know. Seriously, if, if any, if any, the, if any of the top people are listening from uh, Etihad at yeah. uh, Heathrow or Gatwick, doesn't matter which one, because we'll we'll, yeah, we'll drive we'll drive to interview. whichever one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Perhaps you could uh, perhaps you could uh, let us uh, on board, uh, come over and, and, and have a look on board yeah. the aircraft. Oh, that'd be amazing. Wouldn't oh, that be amazing? Dear. Oh wow! I know. So moving on to our last story, and uh, yeah. this one on breaking news travel site again. And FastJet launches codeshare deal with Emirates. So FastJet, Africa's low-cost airline, has signed a sales and distribution contract with Emirates, the world's largest airline by international traffic. That allows et, et, uh, Emirates passengers access to FastJet's growing route network across uh, southern Africa. Emirates passengers will be able to book FastJet tickets on all of Emirates' sale channels using bespoke link between Emirates and FastJet's reservation systems. Emirates currently flies to over 140 destinations across the world, including 20 in Africa, while FastJet is rapidly becoming the leading pan-African low-cost carrier. The partnership will benefit both FastJet and Emirates with greater passenger traffic and will give travellers in Africa the opportunity to connect to the rest of the world through Emirates Dubai Hub, with FastJet providing passengers from African towns and cities. 
commenting uh, commenting on the agreement fast chef uh, chief fast jet chief commercial officer <laughs> richard bowden said uh, we are absolutely delighted to be working with such a highly regarded and successful airline so would i be if i was working with emirates <laughs> yeah not only will it allow us to uh, access to the millions of passengers that emirates carries it also and a significant uh, validation of our operation service and proven low cost model we look forward to greeting Emirates passengers on board our aircraft. So Jet, uh, Fast Jet, I was wondering who Fast Jet were. So I had a little look here. Fast Jet um, are based, or Fast Jet are based uh, in the UK at Gatwick Airport. Mm. Uh, I'd never heard of them. Per- I'd never actually heard of them. But uh, no, uh, no. they have a fleet of uh, purely Airbus A319-100 aircraft. Um, they've got um, uh, four of those in total, four yeah. aircraft, and one of them is an X EasyJet one. Uh, oh, really? EasyJet A319, yeah. <laughs> um, and cool, uh, yeah. yeah, they've got four aircraft. So, I mean, I've, I've never heard of FastJet. I mean, obviously, you know, they're. Well, it, 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 stri- it strikes me as a name, you know, it's a bit like Act. Me Airways, do you know what I mean? It strikes you as uh, as a name that that somebody would use if they didn't want to name an airline. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. It's. Uh, <laughs> I'm just just reading through. I mean, their base their their base is in uh, the headquarters is at Gatwick Airport in in, uh, in the UK. Um, yeah. But the company's stated aim is to become the continent's first low cost Pan African airline. So they actually fly in Africa. But their their actual headquarters are here in the UK, so that's quite an interesting airline there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we think we need to look into them a little bit more, don't we? Mm. Yeah, didn't uh, didn't know anything about those, but there we go. No. So that's so we're going to bring the first segment of the show to a yep. close. We've got some military news coming up, and also, like I said, photo, uh, fingers crossed, we've got a segment from Pip as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Right, get that kettle on, boy. I need to go and get myself another <laughs> drink, and we'll be right back. After these messages, find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Aviation Media has long been the domain of the newspapers and magazines. Well, not anymore. I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, and we're bringing aviation right into your radio. Yes, we're making aviation cool and interesting for everyone. Hang on, aviation's always been cool. Check this out. How cool is this? Grant, Grant, turn that down. Here at Plane Crazy Down Under, we've got pilots, engineers, air traffic controllers, industry leaders, even politicians dropping by to talk to us about the amazing world of aviation right here in Australia and occasionally in New Zealand as well. Wow, that's cooler than I thought, mate. Find us at planecrazydownunder.com, on iTunes, or lurking about on other people's podcasts just like this one. We've got crazy accents and lots of great aviation content. And we promise not to talk about the cricket. No, never. Not the cricket. Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> what is cricket, anyhow? Something we win a lot. Oh, there oh. <laughs>
and we're back after that break. Hello, are you still there in Menorca? I am just about, yes, yes. I, I, oh, I've had to turn on the air conditioning in my studio. All oh, right, yeah. So for the yes. listeners who are Apologies listening via the audio, um, the noise you can hear in the background that is the air conditioning in Matt's air-conditioned studio. Indeed, absolutely. I did send you a picture of the studio. So and that's that already on. on our Facebook page. Oh, is it? All right. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Splendid. Anyway. Right. We're going to yes. kick off then the military segment of the show. So, because if... I'm rather desperate to get back to the swimming pool. Yes, all so, right. Yes. All right. So, if you're, re- <laughs> if you're ready, Matt. Oh, living the dream as always. Let's go. So, kicking off this week's first story on Flight Global, then Lockley, uh, Lockheed F-35C begins second round of sea trials as bombs drop. So, two U.S. Navy F-35C test aircraft have begun a second round of development testing at sea aboard the aircraft carrier, the USS Eisenhower. Aimed at smoothing the aircraft's entry into service in 2018. The arrival of the uh, aircraft CF-03 and CF-05 of the Salty Dogs Air Test and Evaluation Squadron on the 2nd of October. Um, The aircraft carrier uh, comes as the F-35 Joint Program Office announces the first external weapons release from an F-35 with four inert laser-guided 227-kilo bombs successfully dropped from the test aircraft CF-02. A carrier variant at the Navy's uh, Atlantic Test Range, uh, which that was on uh, the 23rd of September in Maryland. All four weapons separated and were successfully and confirmed the accuracy of the predicted release trajectory, the U.S. Navy says. Regarding the sea trials, it's the second time the F-35C has conducted developmental testing aboard an aircraft carrier, and a third and final evaluation is expected next year in preparation for the aircraft's entry into service in 2018. These sea trials will further expand the F-35C's flight envelope, and the F-35 Program Executive Officer, Lieutenant General Chris Bogdan, says in a statement that the testing we're doing today will prepare us for next year's final at-sea development test and keep us on track to support the Navy's 2018 initial operational capability date. The Eisenhower, a Nimitz-class carrier, underwent modification prior to accepting the two F-35Cs, including uh, rebuilt jet blast deflectors for aircraft launch catapults 1 and 2. According to the Navy, the deflectors were redesigned to better withstand the F-35's powerful engine exhaust. The devices protect the crews and equipment on the flight deck during aircraft takeoffs. Improvements were also made to the carrier's arresting or trapping unit with the installation of an advanced recovery control system. When an aircraft lands, no matter what uh, cable it catches, the ARC system will only allow that aircraft to travel a total of 183 feet, or 55.8 metres, down the landing area, says one naval official in a 5th of October statement. The Navy has uh, not introduced a new combat aircraft since the Boeing FA-18 Super Hornet, and by 2025 the service's carrier-based air wings will be comprised of Super Hornets, Boeing EA-18 Growlers and Lockheed F-35Cs. 
with airborne early warning and control from the Northrop Grumman E2Ds and logistic support from the Boeing uh, Bell V-22, the Ospreys, which we all know and love. Uh, during uh, DT-2, the F-35Cs will perform many takeoffs and arrested landings, but the Navy is also assessing the aircraft's maintain, uh, maintainability at sea by conducting live and simulated maintenance operations, as well as fit checks and the aircraft and maintenance gear. So we're seeing uh, this being trialled at sea now, the F-35C, Matt. Uh, as we've said before a million times, mm. a stunning-looking uh, new jet, obviously, uh, capable of um, sort of vertical takeoff and landings with um, the uh, ver- you know the uh, the moving thrust uh, nozzles and stuff. Mm. Um, but uh, obviously, there's trialing trialing it here with dropping bombs. So um, it's uh, moving on in leaps and bounds. Yeah. I think the F-35C, and hopefully, fingers crossed, um, we'll see the F-35 um, at uh, an air show in the UK in 2016. Yeah, absolutely. So next story. Really oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, the next story. This is on Flight Global, and the headline is Tiranis to enter third testing phase. The UK's BAE Systems Tiranis unmanned air, uh, combat air vehicle, the UCAV demonstrator, will carry out a third phase of flight tests towards the end of the year, the Ministry of Defence has revealed. The test programme has gone quiet after two phases of testing in Woomera in Australia, but it will now continue for more for for one more phase to develop technology that could be incorporated into a future combat air system details of what will be tested in this third phase remain unknown uh, squadron leader archie brown of the unmanned air system team at the Ministry of Defence, told the Royal Aeronautical Society's President Conference that whilst the third phase testing had been planned the possibility of a fourth phase and any plans uh, thereafter have not yet been determined when we have these results from phase three we will assess the feasibility of any further work but that decision hasn't been made yet brown says uh uh, began uh, under a four-year 202 million pound program in 2006 with the first flight taking place in august 2013 the industrial partners involved in tyrannus including prime bae systems have lent the skills they developed in the anglo-french future combat air system program that is very much underway a team of six companies are, are some of are some 12 months into a two-year feasibility study to assess the requirements for a future combat aircraft. The first year is nearly complete and we are assessing data collected by the six party partners Sorry, to down-select to one aircraft design and that down-select will be made uh, in the next month, Brown says. Brown adds that the MOD's involvement in these efforts does not mean that the future of air combat will necessarily uh, just be unmanned combat air vehicles. If the UK were to make a decision to acquire a UCAV, it would be part of a force mix, he says. The FCAS effort is focused on unmanned because it's the area we understand the least. So therefore, it makes sense to concentrate on technology development in that area. I think I, I think this is the way that military in general is going to go, isn't it? Certainly as far as... Um, I mean, I, I don't like it personally. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry if we are going to go to war. Um, I don't, you know, reconnaissance 
is something that's very different. You know, if you're gathering data, then let's not put somebody in there. But if you're going to go somewhere and blow other people up, you should at least have the balls to send, you know, <laughs> one of your own people. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm not a well fan said. Of well said. Stop. Do you know what I mean? But mm. if you are gonna, if you are gonna do it, you know, then at least have the courage to to send somebody. You know, you d- d- don't send a drone. You know, let's. Uh, mm. I mean, I, I get why they're doing it, but you know. It's, it's well, I, I, I didn't know what this Tyrannus was, I have yeah. to say. I'd never heard of the Tyrannus. And no. um, it's, 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 it's designed by BAE Systems um, in the UK here. It's also nicknamed the Raptor. And it's a, wow. the Tyrannus is a British demonstrator program for unmanned okay. uh, combat area vehicle um, technology. Mm. And it first flew in 2013 and is a semi-autonomous manned warplane. Uh, it's been designed to fly intercontinental missions and will carry a variety of weapons, uh, enabling it to attack ground and aerial targets. It's wow. also going to utilize stealth technology, giving it a low radar profile, and will be controllable mm-hmm. via a satellite link from anywhere on Earth. Wow. Uh, it's been. I, don't get me. I'm not. I'm not. Take. I'm not de- decrying. You know, that there should definitely be testing in this area. But you know, I. I you know, if it, I don't like the idea of sending. And it's probably happening, and we don't even know it, isn't it? You know, where drones are being sent to blow stuff up. But you know, you need. You, you need somebody there to make that final decision, don't you? I think. But, um, we've well, had um, we've had a comment on Facebook while we've been on uh, <laughs> say been online while we've been yeah. recording um, yeah. uh, from the uh, pictures that I put on Facebook of uh, our respective studios oh, and yes, uh, right. Neil okay. Neil Braden has put uh, no live feed this week so, sorry Neil no live no. feed this week uh, no. for one good reason because <laughs> I, I'm, I, I can I can get the audio feed done but uh, the visual <laughs> feed is something Matt has to do. Yes, yes. Although I managed to do it in your absence, it has to be said. But anyway, but you are a legend. We, so we, there we go. I, we, what we, we what we will do, Carl, is we will yes. train you so that at least <laughs> even if we're not there, you can still do an audio YouTube thing. Let, so, I mean, let's let's, time, let's be honest here, Matt. You you trained me all those years ago in the <laughs> art of DJism. Yeah, no, I told you before. I don't want any responsibility or blame for that. And and you and you 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 uh, instructed me as to how to connect up amplifiers and speakers and right, and stuff. Yes, so yes. so I mean, if you can teach me how to do that, then you should be yes, able to teach me how fine. to do yes. the other we bit. We should be able to do that. Yeah. I'll I'll walk you through it when I get home. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Anyway, next yes. story uh, on the yes. Royal Air Force site, and uh, this one is about a helicopter we all know and love here in the UK. Uh, the headline, Chivener Seeking Complete Final RAF UK Operational Sortie. Uh, yes, now I saw Simon put this on the old Facebook um, mm. feed this week, didn't he? It was uh, very sad, actually. The great pictures, though, but very sad. Yes, it was very sad indeed. So um, the story it goes that, uh, well, it was uh, on the... I'm just trying to look at the exact... It was this week, on the 4th mm. of... Uh, it was yeah. Sunday the 4th of October at uh, 3.18 a.m. So uh, the more than 74 years of continuous life-saving operations by the Royal Air Force in the UK came to an end at 1 p.m. when the Chivener Duty Search and Rescue Crew was formally relieved from its uh, standby commitment... Uh, by the United Kingdom Aeronautical Rescue Coordination Centre. 
the telephone call authorising the RAF to uh, finally stand down from SAR operations came moments after both of Chivana's Sea King helicopters touched down. The call was received by Wing Commander Sparky Dunlop, Officer Commanding 22 Squadron. Immediately after receiving the call, Wing Commander Dunlop walked a few paces from his office to pass on the news to his staff, taking the opportunity to thank them for their immense uh, contribution and life-saving achievements. Chivana is the last of the RAF's six SAR bases to hand over responsibility for helicopter SAR provision to Bristow Helicopters Limited. Official RAF SAR statistic record-keeping only began in 1983, but since then these six RAF units have completed 34,025 call-outs and rescues. Uh, They've uh, managed to rescue 26,853 people in distress. Uh, These figures do not include rescue sorties and persons assisted by some other RAF SAR helicopter bases which have closed or been relocated over the period. Similarly, they do not reflect the numbers assisted between the early uh, 1950s when the helicopters uh, came into use as rescue platforms by the RAF and 1982, but significant uh, further number of people were rescued and sorties flown over that period in the early 80s. The final RAF uh, search and rescue uh, in the UK was uh, very much business as usual. Chivna's final search and rescue operation took place in the early hours of Sunday the 4th of October at 3.18 in the morning. And uh, the coordinator centre received a request from the Devon and Cornwall police asking for an RAF SAR helicopter to take a 38-year-old male found unconscious on a life-grown beach to a hospital uh, to uh, get some uh, uh, treatment. And uh, as I said, that was the last uh, mission flown. Uh, the casualty was flown to Swansea Morriston Hospital, after which uh, the crew of the 169 Rescue 169 flew to Cardiff Airport to refuel. Uh, dense fog re- uh, prevented their departure, so a second RAF SAR crew was brought into readiness at Chivna and took over the commitment, providing the final few hours of RAF SAR standby duty in the UK. The mm. Sea King at Cardiff flew back to Chivna, landing at 12.07pm. The last operational SAR flying sortie in the UK was captained by Flight Lieutenant Christian Taff Wilkins. Wilkins. <laughs> Uh, his, uh, he and his crew flew a routine training sortie in the morning, touching down at precisely 12.30pm. Both crews met in Chibna's ready room before Wing Commander Dunlop received a telephone call advising that his services and his crews were to be stood down from UK SAR operational commitments. And uh, it's sad. It's, it is a real, it real sad, sad thing. Yeah. You know, this is a helicopter that we all know. We all know, mm. you know what, what it looks like. It's yellow. Especially in this part of the world, um, isn't it? It's, mm. it's, it's, it's very synonymous with the Norfolk coastline, yeah. isn't it? The, and, and yellow as well, isn't it? It mm. really does. I suppose I suppose things... I, I, I understand to a degree why it's sort of come out of service because it is an old helicopter. And oh, you yeah. do have... Most authorities now do have... All right, it's a slightly different service, I know, but... We do have, um, you know, the air ambulance that that is available in most regions in this this country now. That, yeah, that, which that is do mostly land. Job. Yeah, mostly land. But I mean, this was this is mm. more more the sort of sea uh, based missions. This one, this yeah. one sort of done. So who who's taking over? So 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 what's happening now? Because if the RAF have been officially stood down, I mean, presumably rescue services are still being offered. Yeah, rescue off uh, is still being offered. Uh, it's through Bristow Helicopters, 
Um, right. For those of you in in the UK, will know Bristow helicopters um, mm. supply a lot of uh, the uh, helicopters which fly the workers out to the oil rigs dotted mm. around. Yeah, they used uh, to have a base at Yarmouth, didn't they? Yes, they did, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think they've still got one at Norwich, haven't they? Uh, I think, yeah, I think they have. Uh, they, yeah. yeah, I think they had one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they've got one in Norwich. I'm pretty sure yeah. they've got one in Norwich. Um, but Bristow helicopters um, uh, were founded in 1953. Uh, but they've got headquarters in Aberdeen, Scotland, and uh, in the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, and they have uh, quite a large fleet. They've got uh, just over 490 helicopters and aircraft, mm. um, which is uh, which is quite a large fleet of, uh, of helicopters. Yeah. But uh, no, they're, they're going to be yeah. supplying the. Um, they, I mean, they fly um, the Sikorsky Air S61s helicopters, mm. um, and also they've got uh, the 76, Corsica 76s they fly as well, but uh, what they'll right. be using for the sea rescue ones, that I, I think it'll be the Corsica mm. 61s, but but uh, yeah. no, the Westland Sea King that we've been talking about, Matt, uh, first, yeah. first flew, as you said, an old, uh, old helicopter, first flew in 1969. Gosh. Gosh, mm. it's, uh, it, it's, 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 it's overdue its uh, retirement then, to be fair, bless it. But a proven workhorse, a damn good, damn good well, helicopter. Well, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, and it, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't have still been used after all this time if it weren't any good these days, would it? So it's, it's obviously, you know, it's more than the... And, it, and the numbers are terrifying, aren't they? The amount of people it's actually sort of helped I know. out. It, it's amazing. All the stats amazing. there are just, just mm. amazing. Anyway, uh, on to the next story this is flight global and the headline is northrop builds first f-35 center fuselage for assembly in japan northrop northrop grumman has built the first f-35 center fuselage destined for japan's domestic joint strike fighter assembly plant operated by mitsubishi heavy industries the company's says the center fuselage is the core of the AX-5, Japan's fifth example, and will become the first to enter Japan's uh, Nagoya, uh, yeah, sorry, Japan's Nagoya final assembly and checkout plant instead of prime contractor Lockheed Martin's facility in Fort Worth, Texas. It is the 207th center fuselage that the company has produced at its uh, Palmdale site and the 30th unit delivered this year, the company said in a 4th of October statement. MHI will perform final assembly and checkout of the Japanese F-35As. The process includes mating the center fuselage to the forward fuselage cockpit and wings produced by Lockheed Martin and the aft fuselage produced by BAE Systems. Last month, Northrop announced it is shortening the production cycle for the F-35 center fuselages at Palmdale from 11.5 months down to 10 to meet a planned production ramp up. Japan intends to purchase 42 conventional variants of the F-35 to replace the McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantom and has interest in procuring more jets to replace of its Boeing F-15 fleet. Under a license agreement signed in 2013, 38 aircraft will be assembled in Japan as first 
four are being delivered through Lockheed's Fort Worth plant. The first aircraft is expected to roll out of the Nagoya line in 2017. Uh, those four aircraft are already under construction as part of the eighth low-rate initial production lot, and Lockheed F-35 program manager Lorraine Martin says that the first example will be ready in the second quarter of 2016 ahead of checkout and delivery to the Japanese government later that year. Italy also opted to assemble its aircraft domestically at its Kameri plant operated by Alina Eramashi. The uh, local example completed its first flight in September. So they're building building bits of this aircraft in other countries, even as Japan. Look, you see. Yeah, I, I guess it kind of makes sense though, because mm. I suppose I suppose if you are if you've got a, a large order, if you've got several to to complete for that country, it kind of makes sense, you know, from a and shipping got, cost point of view. Nothing it, it, else. And their their production centres and stuff in Japan are yeah. just like huge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all computerised, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's stunning, isn't it? I mean, look at Airbus. Yeah. I mean, Airbus, the part components of Airbus aircraft, the wings and stuff like that, are produced all around Europe. Um, yeah. You know, we, we produce various bits for the Airbuses in the UK mm. here, and other bits are produced in France and Germany, in all yeah. around Europe. So um, it, it's, it's one of those things that all uh, airline builders have to do, I think, to, uh, mm. to ramp up productions, get loads of other countries to well, build Well, as you it. say, and if they've, if they've got a lot of orders, and you know, it's a way of ensuring there isn't a backlog and that kind of thing, isn't it? It just sort of makes good commercial sense, I guess. Yes. So the last uh, story mm. for the military segment this week uh, is a very important story, and for one reason, and which is uh, going to be hopefully okay, because I'll release this episode. I might try and get this episode out actually tomorrow, which is Saturday. Because on Sunday, and uh, this is a story on the Royal Air Force site again, uh, on Sunday uh, this week, which is the the date on Sunday, will be oh. the uh, 11th, Sunday the 11th. Yep. Uh, for those of you who can uh, watch... No, Sunday the 12th, mate. Oh, Sunday the twelfth. Is it Sunday the twelfth? No, no, no. Hang on. It's uh, that is the eleventh. It's October today. It's October is ten, isn't yes. it? Yes. Shut up, Smith. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so on Sunday, Sunday the eleventh um, of October, um, mm-hmm. there is a documentary series, um, which is a brand new documentary series, which is going to be shown on UK telly, uh, and it will be on BBC Two. Uh, mm. at uh, 9 o'clock and it's a new documentary series tri- or trailing some of the RAF's most popular display teams and oh, cool. um, Britain's Ultimate Pilots uh, Inside the RAF the series is called showcases the work of the Red Arrows and the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight and the Chinook display team and the Typhoon display team uh, which they've been following during the 2015 display season uh, produced by Archie Productions, Red Arrows Inside the Bubble, Britain's Flying Past, the four-part series was filmed at RAF Coningsby, RAF Scampton, RAF Alderman, and other locations between April and September 2015. The show follows the teams as they prepare, prepare for their fly-pass and displays at major events, including the Queen's Fly-Past at, uh, and also uh, some of Britain's most popular air shows, including the Royal International Air Tattoo at RAF Fairford, which we were at, Mm. And also RAF Cosford, Blackpool and Bournemouth. In the opening episode, the uh, Red Arrows plan for one of their biggest weekends of the season with uh, displays at Biggin Hill and RAF Cosford and a fly-past over Buckingham Palace uh, for Her Majesty the Queen's birthday celebrations. And they could have found a new fan in the young Prince George. I remember seeing him waving to the, uh, uh, yes, the planes. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. 
Uh, episode 2 follows the Battle of Brit Memorial Flight as they prepare for a huge warbird Balbo and the Spitfire Typhoon Synchro 75 at Riat. We saw those. Mm, uh, episode 3 sees the Chinook display team getting ready to display over the water at Blackpool Air Show. And in episode four, the Typhoon display team prepares to travel to Bournemouth Air Festival. Air Commodore Nigel Bradshaw, ACOS mem- uh, Media and Comms at uh, Headquarters Air Command, said, Giving Archie production film crews unprecedented access to some of our most popular display teams gave us the opportunity to highlight their professionalism and the varied operational environments they are drawn from. Importantly, the documentary also allowed us to show some of our operational roles, including that of the Chinook in Afghanistan, while the inclusion of a quick reaction alert typhoon scramble RF Coningsby demonstrated how we continue to secure British skies 75 years on from the Battle of Britain. The crews also filmed the world-class training facilities available to RAF personnel, including the Advanced Typhoon Simulator at RAF Coningsby and the Royal Navy's Underwater Escape Training Unit at RNAS Yeldleton. Of course, the filming wasn't limited to pilots, uh, Air Commodore Bradshaw added. By allowing the film crew to work with our ground crews, engineers and all of the others who helped to get our aircraft airborne, we were able to show how the few supported by the many continue to protect the nation and our interests from the air. John Marley, Archie Productions executive producer, said the Red Arrows are an internationally renowned institution and our exclusive access highlights the breadth and scope of work undertaken by the RAF display teams. These films offer a unique insight into the day-to-day life over the summer months, and we were thrilled to work with the Royal Air Force again. So this is going to be a brilliant show. It is. Um, I'll tell you what, actually, as soon as we finish this, um, if you go to the iPlayer and mm. find the, the link to the program, actually, you'll put that on the Facebook feed immediately, really, because yeah, yeah, yeah. people, people need to see this program, don't they? It sounds, it sounds like it's going to be unmissable television, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be cool. Uh, to mm. watch this so um yeah definitely get that one set in your uh, in your boxes yeah, at home absolutely. on the uh, I dare record. say it will Series be available link. by other sources across the world mm. as well for mm. our international listeners um so, and when i get back from holiday i will i will look into into where what networks it's available from obviously outside of the uk as well so uh, mm. yeah no it, it, it's going to be a must watch i think so that's on sunday the 11th of october on yeah. bbc2 at 9 p.m. Every week. So did you say it was four programmes? Yes, so it's four, four programmes. programmes yeah, starting yeah. this Sunday. So if you do miss the first one, obviously catch it on the iPlayer mm. um, or wherever it is available at BBC Worldwide, I dare say. It will be available in the States. So, uh, so yeah, definitely. Mm. Excellent. Good programme. I can't wait to see it. Anyway, uh, enough of all this excitement. It is time <laughs> to get down to being very serious. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome, as always, the legend that is Pilot Pip for his latest segment. So I think we should sit down and give this a good listen. What do you reckon, Carl? Yeah, let's, uh, let's kick back with some Pilot Pip. Take it away, yeah. Pip. And now it's time to visit the cockpit and join the man who puts the S in safe. It's the plane safety from the flight deck segment with Captain Pip. Hi everyone, it's Pilot Pip here. Coming at you live from the lovely island of Mallorca, where I spent the majority of the day lounging around and watching the rugby and generally enjoying the sunshine. I know Matt, as we speak, is just across the water on the uh, other lovely island of Menorca, enjoying the sunshine as well. So uh, tough luck, Carlos. Maybe next time. (laughs) 
Although, to be fair, you did just spend a whole week in Malta, so I think we're all leaving, actually, on the cushy assignments front. Anyhow, down to work. Just a very short segment today, uh, and just a few thoughts on pre-flight inspections. Now, I know I did a little segment on this a few months ago where I uh, recorded live a a pre-flight walk-around and and told you some of the things that I've been looking for. But I just thought I'd take a second to just come at it from a a slightly different angle and talk about some of the drawbacks and some of the dangers of doing a pre-flight inspection, or at least not doing them properly. Now, the pre-flight walk-around is something we do on every single flight that we make, or at least it's something we should do on every single flight. And, And generally, of course, we do. But the danger is you can become very complacent when you're doing your pre-flight checks. There's probably a few dozen things you're looking for and pretty soon you get into a routine and you find yourself just walking around going through the motions. And I find myself constantly just looking but not seeing. So I've gone around and I've looked at the thing but have I really checked it? Have I really registered in my brain the thing, you know, is that panel locked? Is that little pin in the appropriate position? And almost every day, actually, I find myself, especially later in the day after a few flights, maybe the third or fourth sector of the day, I find myself thinking, hang on, I know I looked at that thing, but did I actually look at that thing? And lots of times I've got to go back and double check, is that panel really locked? Are the towing pins really out? Because it's so easy just to go around and see, and your brain sees what it wants to see. And of course, the danger there is, You want to see that the towing pins are removed, and actually they're not, but you just don't notice it. Although it's right there in front of your face, it just doesn't tick that little uh, box in your brain. And then the first thing you're going to know about it is after you take off and you select the gear up, and the thing doesn't move, and inevitably you'll both look at each other and go, "Uh uh-oh, were those pins really out? So it can be quite tricky sometimes to really get in the right frame of mind and take take the pre-flight checks not seriously, that's not the right word, but to really force yourself into paying attention and and really looking at the things you need to be seeing. And sometimes that can be difficult. As I say, you've done a few flights already, you're tired that day, maybe now it's peeing down with rain and all you want to do is get back inside in the warm and dry. But unfortunately, if we're really doing our job properly, then we're going to have to get a little bit wet and hang around in the rain just a few minutes longer to make sure we do those checks properly. And then we have something that I talked about a little bit a few episodes ago on plane safety, something called normalization of deviation, which is something that comes into play when we're looking at pre-flight checks and post-flight checks as well. Normalization of deviation is, um, is a term we use to describe the gradual drifting away from a standard operating procedure. And this can be a sort of a company-wide thing, or it might be uh, specific on a fleet, but it's a behavior that you can identify in a, in a group of people, a company, a certain group within that company where they've got a standard procedure and over time they drift away and when there's no ill effects from deviating away from that standard then it starts to become a normal and accepted behavior so even though we know that the the SOP is one thing we're all accepting that we do something else and that normalization of deviation could be applied to many different areas of of the job we do but one of the things that I'm seeing um, recently I suppose is a normalization of deviation on certain aspects of the walk around pre-flight walk around and the post-flight walk around particularly we are meant to there's a, a certain part at the the rear of the aircraft a hatch that we're meant to open and stick our head up into or at least put our arm up into and check that a couple of filter pins are in place the truth is it's a real pain in the backside to do it it's really awkward to get to you've got to crouch down 
reach up inside and bend your arm in unnatural ways and it's, it really is a nuisance to do but it is required as part of our SOPs and is required as part of the flight manual and increasingly and I'm as guilty as anyone I see people skipping that now is it a safety critical thing no not really but it is tempting to let that behavior become normal as we see other people doing it and we're seeing that you know there are no bad effects from that nothing is going awry so I'm having to remind myself and I'm making an effort to make sure I do all of those pre and post flight checks as thoroughly as I can because you never know when you're going to find something quite unexpected and you know these things pop up from time to time you do hear in the press occasionally about uh, stowaways hiding in the undercarriage of aircraft and certainly over the years I've come across a couple of odd ones I remember a few years ago picking up uh, an aircraft in Dubai the aircraft had been sat there for a couple of days and we went out and upon doing the, the pre-flight inspection I found a, a rather sizable bird's nest up inside the undercarriage. Now the ground staff there, they were just going to take the bird's nest and, and sling it aside but uh, being the animal lovers we are, we uh, went to great lengths to, to rescue the bird nests from the innards of the aircraft and, and deliver it somewhere safely uh, to another part of the airfield. And, you know, you occasionally find the odd thing as well, uh, spanners and wrenches and things that have been mistakenly left by maintenance personnel in uh, nooks and crannies of various parts of the aircraft. Which reminds me of the, a very early lesson uh, I received in aviation back when I was just a teenager. I was 15 years old and I was lucky enough to have a summer job at Kenley Gliding Club. It was a wonderful summer spent working uh, up at the gliding club just as a, a general helping out lad. Uh, helping people get in and out of the gliders, driving the tractor and driving the, the launching winch. And as part of my payment for that job was that I got two flights a day. When This is, this is uh, really how I first learned to fly back when I was 15. And I do remember one of the instructors there, You know, he taught me how to do the pre-flight checks. And then one day, to test me, to see if I was really doing them properly, he hid uh, a wrench down in between the rudder pedals in the glider and I didn't see it and he pointed this out to me and gave me a, a suitably deserved telling off so after that I had a I was always on my uh, guard to have a very good look around especially inside the cockpit when I was doing the pre-flight checks and unsurprisingly a couple of weeks later he tried to pull the same stunt again he hid a little uh, wrench spanner type device down in between the rudder pedals and I thought aha well you're not going to get me a second time so I took the wrench out and thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to get my own back on him here. So I took the wrench out, said to him, all done. And he came around and he said, okay, so did you find anything unusual? I said, no, I didn't. And he said, oh, well, look, what about this wrench? I said, what wrench? And he said, this one down here. And he looked and of course there was no wrench because I'd hidden it in my back pocket. And he was frantic. He was saying, oh, I put a wrench in here. Where's it gone? I said, oh, I don't know. There wasn't a wrench when I looked. And he was frantically looking because it had obviously, in his mind, fallen down into the into the uh, the cables and the wiring for the controls. So I let him sweat for a couple of minutes before I pulled the wrench out of my back pocket. And again, I got a, a suitably deserved telling off for that, for trying to be a smart ass. So there we go. Pre-flight and post-flight checks, very important, and they need to be done correctly, regardless if it's peeing down with rain or if you've got better things you'd rather be doing. It's one of those jobs we just need to be on top of. 
That's it for this segment. Hopefully catch up with you again next week. Until then, back to the guys in the studio. And thanks, as always, Pip, for that say We really appreciate your time. I, I, actually, he's been uh, suffering a similar experience to myself. I don't know if you saw on his Facebook. Oh, um, yeah, he's been... Know, tricky places to, yeah. to, to spend downtime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's had a similar predicament to me this week, you know, which lounger to lay on, stuff yeah. like that. Honestly, it's a tough life that we lead. It so really don't forget, to, you can find Pip over at the Plane Safety Podcast on iTunes. And yes, absolutely. And, and uh, download uh, our show. To get in touch with us, yeah, to get in touch with us, don't forget then it's the usual channels facebook.com forward slash plain talking UK. Our Twitter handle is at plain talking UK. And of course, the lovely website, which is w.plaintalkinguk.com. <laughs> uh, you can find this podcast if you're listening to it, it's probably already too late. Um, but Sorry. You can find this podcast cast on the usual channels uh on itunes or stitcher or any of the major major ones we are there in anywhere where it's worth listening to podcasts we are very much there just laughing there because of all the times for skype to go it was doing it while you (laughs) i know it was but we we got most of that matt we got most of that but everyone knows where they can find us but uh please do send us some feedback um it would be awesome something as well uh which we haven't had for a long while um if uh, if you've got a smartphone or uh, or a tablet or something send us some voice feedback we can plan the show oh yeah we like um, that. Yeah, yeah. an mp3 like file or something like that would be good send us send us yeah. an email with that in um that would be pretty Format awesome it's in i can convert it so yeah it's no it, it doesn't Any matter format you like so, exactly you can send that uh, what's what's the email address that they can send that to matt it is yes our email address is podcast at, at com. yeah send us um, send us your file there and we'll play it on the show and uh, hopefully we can hear some of our listeners from across the pond yeah definitely excellent well hopefully uh, as of next week, we'll be back to uh, a live show. I, I, I hope that's I hope the so. plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, no disrespect, Carlos, but it's time for me to get back to my sunlight. I know. Uh, <laughs> Must be your tea time. It, it, uh, no, no, no. It's quite late, actually. We can't eat until half seven here. No! And it's only six o'clock here oh, well. in Menorca at the moment. Five o'clock where you are, obviously. But uh, yeah. yeah, so 7.30 Menorca time is when we're allowed in the dinner hall. But uh, yeah, so I shall just have to go and lie on a sun lounger till then, really. Well, I hope you uh, you obviously <laughs> enjoy the rest of your holiday, Matt. I certainly will. Yeah, um, no, it's, been, it's been great so far. It's been lovely. The, the, we've been really lucky with the weather, actually. Um, we, we've been sort of... I've, the, today's actually been one of the <laughs> coolest days at 18 degrees, but we've had... Uh, uh, well, we peaked at 28 uh, on Woo-hoo! the first day we were here, but it's been around mm. the 21 to 24 mark um, the rest of the time. That's degrees Celsius obviously so uh, so yeah we've been it's been lovely it really has oh good i'm glad i hope you enjoy the rest of your holiday and give give mother indeed. a hug hug from me and I, all the rest I of the will listeners indeed. Yeah, she will be eternally grateful i'm sure yes all right mate nice to speak to you yes uh thanks uh thanks for uh letting me uh join you uh from uh, the other end of uh of europe <laughs> and don't forget to um, join us next week for our live show um hopefully we're going to start putting some of the interviews in um which i got uh in mm. Mal- at the malta international air show yes, um absolutely. last week 
And also we have still got as well uh, the short interview that we took with Lauren Richardson at Seeding Air yes, Show as yeah. well. And um, we're going to get that in ASAP. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's it then for episode 81 from me, Carlos, here in the UK. It is a blue sky and gorgeous, sunny, but a wee bit chilly. Goodbye. And from here in Mallorca, in Mallorca, I'm saying it now, Menorca, <laughs> sorry, uh, here in Menorca, it is a, uh, it's a chilly day at 18 degrees, it has to be said, um, but it is nevertheless, not quite blue skies, it's sort of quite cloudy, but uh, it is far from cold, uh, it's uh, uh, yeah, a goodbye from here in Menorca. Bye-bye! Bye-bye! Bye-bye!